in the US, in the near future, it is hard for me to see any crypto rules being written at all. The regulatory environment is going to be set by enforcement litigation in a very unfavorable scenario for crypto. The coronavirus pandemic has tanked the global economy with unprecedented speed. The steepness of the decline here is unprecedented. This is a crisis that is unprecedented. It is unprecedented and we just don't know. This is Beyond Unprecedented, the post-pandemic economy, a limited series podcast from Columbia Law School and the Ira M. Milstein Center for Global Markets and Corporate Ownership. I'm Eric Talley, Salzbacher Professor at Columbia Law School and co-director of the Milstein Center. And I'm Tally Gillis, Associate Professor of Law and Milton Handler Fellow at Columbia Law School. Today, we'll explore the growing crisis in the cryptocurrency financial system. We'll discuss the implosion of several big players in the crypto market, the relevant regulatory framework, and what lies ahead for the space. So Eric, what's your crypto portfolio doing? I have to say, Talia, like this is the stuff that I teach. I try to communicate principles of corporate finance to my law students and business students. I find that if I don't fully understand how a product works, I'm not very good about teaching on it. And in fact, I generally stay away from it. I will confess I have a very, very small amount of Bitcoin that I purchased five years ago when Tim Wu and I were writing a paper about blockchain, Um, but it's a a really de minimis uh, investment. What about your crypto portfolio? I would say pretty non-existent. So I remember how around, I'd say about a decade ago, um, when Bitcoin was kind of the main topic of graduate student uh, dinner parties, and people would talk about their plans to kind of mine Bitcoin. But I, I didn't really fit the profile. So for many of these people, it was either to mine Bitcoin or build a car from scratch. <laughs> so I figured I'd kind of stay away, stick to my Vanguard lifecycle fund. This is all exciting and confusing kind of all at the same time, which makes it almost a perfect topic for any uh, law and business and finance podcast. And in my mind, there's no person better to clarify things than our guest today, Matt Levine. Matt is a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering finance. He was the editor of Deal Breaker, and he is a recovering banker and M&A lawyer, as well as a former clerk for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Matt himself did a, an in-depth dive about six months ago in Bloomberg's Business Week magazine, uh, and I have actually assigned that to students who want to know more about how the crypto economy works. And so uh, it's a pleasure to have you, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Matt, cryptocurrencies um, have for several years been at the center of an interesting debate among financial professionals. So some of the traditional icons of investing, such as Charlie Munger, have described crypto as a gambling contract with nearly 100% edge for the house. Todd Baker, a senior fellow here at Columbia, has also characterized crypto trading as a multiplayer esports gambling competition and thinks crypto should be cleaved entirely from the rest of the financial system with a separate regulatory regime. But advocates of crypto still say that it is going through growing pains, but is still destined to revolutionize uh, finance. So simple question, who's right? Gosh, I don't know. I read a long thing about the crypto world for Business Week a couple of weeks before FTX imploded. And what I said then was that the crypto financial system is really interesting. And there's a lot of smart people from like the traditional financial system who are in crypto to build platforms and products for trading. 
I expressed the skepticism that sort of rhymes with like Charlie Munger's, which is that like most of what they're trading is gambling contracts, right? Like most of what they're trading is stuff that has no kind of underlying thing to it. Even back then, you'd, you'd read venture capitalists saying, no, 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 the future of social networking, the future of the metaverse, the future of art, the future of news media, something is being built on the, te on the technological rails of, uh, of, of crypto, where like both technological, but also financial innovations of crypto enable the building of better tech products. And I said, well, maybe, but like the financial system they're building is really interesting. And even if the sort of upshot of that is that these like exciting new crypto players end up finding a way to kind of wrap stocks or bonds or treasuries or whatever, or, or dollars, and like sort of build a, a, a sort of 21st century like trading mechanism for financial claims, like that would be a pretty interesting achievement. And it felt like that was like they were closer to that. Like there was a crypto financial system that like looked cool in a lot of ways and like got a lot of excitement in a way that was not true of like a crypto social networking site or whatever. And so I wrote that article and then um, FTX exploded. All of the other bits of the crypto financial system feel really undermined by that and the, the sort of knock on effects of that. So I think there are a lot of people who still run big crypto firms and who still think that like crypto is a good way to build a financial system, but their arguments have been really undercut by the exposed badness of the actually existing crypto financial system. Well, a little bit on that too, Matt, because I, I think that cryptocurrencies and the speculation on cryptocurrencies, that, that's actually built on another platform of a distributed ledger technology. And one of the things that you lay out, uh, which I think is actually super relevant for people who are thinking about and teaching law, is that DeFi or crypto, however you want to define it, or blockchain, kind of constitutes another vision for how you instill trust in an economic system. It's a type of trust that isn't as frequently or, or maybe at all intermediated by the types of governmental interventions and officials and civil servants and judges, but instead it's intermediated by a type of con consensus through blockchain, distributed ledger, sort of agreement amongst participants. Um, and the thing that I found super interesting about the expose is that you also observed in that piece that as the you know, crypto sort of industry was reinventing trustworthiness and, and verification in, in a different area. It also just sort of rediscovered a, some, some of the same wheels that traditional finance had had to encounter, you know, you know, 80, 90, 60 years ago, uh, the possibility of abusing or undermining trust, including fraud. And so, you know, in the last year, we've witnessed the collapse of a ton of these platforms, uh, not just FTX, but Celsius, Genesis Global Capital. And despite the newness of these platforms or technologies, these players still seem to occupy this position of intermediaries where abuse and undermining of trust can have real effects. They took crypto deposits, they promised interest on those deposits, they deployed the assets to make investments, uh, and then several of them got caught in what seemed to be a good old-fashioned bank run, except for it all took place on the distributed ledger. So how did this sort of new and supposedly better trust system break down in your mind? How did it end up sort of getting tripped up by some stuff that we, you know, observed in the 1930s with conventional banking? The one correction I'd say to that is that, is that the bank runs didn't really take place on the distributed ledger. The bank runs really took place at banks. Like they took place on the books of firms that were unregulated banks in some form or another, Celsius and Voyager and FTX and others. And that's kind of a, gets to your question, which is that 
there is this like technological and, and philosophical underpinning of crypto that, as you say, is like, you know, meant to be trustless, right? It's, it's that instead of traditional mechanisms for trust, there is this notion that you sort of hard code incentives and you make it so that the people doing the stuff, confirming the transactions are algorithmically incentivized to do the right thing, right? They have enough of a stake in it and the system works such that if they do the wrong thing, they lose their stake and then some form or another. You know, there are people who are like true crypto people who love that stuff philosophically and who program that stuff and who are really into it. And there are problems with that, right? And the main one is just that like everything is meant to be embedded in code and sometimes people mess up the code and other people have incentives to attack it. But it's just a lot of, you know, people like want to, you know, buy a thing that's going up. And many of those people are not interested in all this stuff. And it turns out that all this like trustless technological rails is hard to use. And so there are companies that have websites where you go to the website and you give them your credit card and you buy Bitcoin. And then like you have Bitcoin in their account. You never have to memorize a seed phrase or like deal with hardware wallets. You just have to don't, don't have to deal with it. You just come to the webpage that like, you know, gives you uh, an account statement that says this is how many Bitcoin you have. And those companies are just not, they have nothing to do with the trustless crypto ecosystem. But like the things they actually are, are just banks. They're just like unregulated banks that hold money for people. Trust and intermediaries are really valuable and people really want that. And if you are a person who's like, I will hold your money for you and do something useful with it and you don't have to worry about it, like you're selling a service that people want. And even in crypto, where people are sort of like ostentatiously rejecting that service, they come back to wanting that service. It's also, I think it's like fascinating to look at the, like the actual humans who are, who are obtaining that trust. Some of them are like carnival barkers where it's like, don't trust the banks, trust me, I've got a song and dance. It's a real appeal to sort of conspiratorial people. Other people are like present as smart finance professionals who are like, I'm not seduced by the nonsense here. I'm just like a guy who knows how to hedge, right? And in both of those categories, there are people who turned out to not be very trustworthy. The people who buy crypto are humans, right? The sort of technological development of Bitcoin doesn't solve any problems of like human gullibility or, or just human behavior, right? And the humans want stuff that is not necessarily like rational and embeddable in code. They want to trust their money to someone who looks like someone they should trust, you know? And all of that stuff plays out in crypto, even though there's like this, this side of crypto that is like, we don't trust anyone. That's really fascinating. It kind of makes me think about other areas in which there's some kind of technological innovation. And when it comes in interaction with consumers, we actually pull back the innovation and go to, to the more traditional realm uh, that consumers are used to. It made me think kind of in, in the realm of, of robo-advice, for example, where the idea was financial advisors might be uh, biased, they might be incompetent, let's get better quality advice from robo-advisors, uh, cheaper quality advice. And then after a while, kind of a lot of the providers of the robo-advice kind of realize that actually people just want a human being. And so you have a human being who's then kind of reading off whatever the, the robot's advising and then translating it to consumers. So it seems like a lot of these realms in which consumers kind of want what they're used to rather than the core of the innovation. I found in writing this like long business week story about crypto that crypto is a weird area because it exposes a lot of its technology in a way that you don't see elsewhere. Very few, I think, customers of robo-advisors are like reading the code of the robo-advisor and sort of like looking at how it optimizes taxes and whatever, right? Like it's just like there's this notion that like some tech company builds technology and then you use it. 
And in crypto, if you want to get into crypto, at some point you have to like talk about blockchains, right? And blockchains are like the database architecture of like the Bitcoin ledger. And you're like, oh, blockchains. And like you learn, you know, I read this whole thing about blockchains, right? Like no one cares about the database architecture at JP Morgan, right? Except for like, you know, the engineers at JP Morgan. Like the, the people who bank there just assume it works, right? In crypto, so much of the technology is exposed in a way that is, I think, really daunting for ordinary humans. And so it creates a real opportunity for people who are like, I understand this architecture. Don't worry about it. Just give your money to me and I'll blockchain, you know? And because it is new and because people are so like enthused about the technology, like the details of the te technology become more of the story than they would be in a lot of other areas. So Matt, I want to take you back to FTX. So as you mentioned, FTX has become a kind of poster child for the current meltdown. Not too long ago, FTX was one of the central players in the field with an estimated value north of 30 billion. But last fall, this came to a screeching halt with FTX and its affiliate Alameda Research experiencing a cataclysmic and public collapse in just a few days. Um, and unsurprisingly, this has triggered a criminal and regulatory investigation. Some have claimed that FTX was an aberration or part of a systematic cycle. It sounds like you see the FTX explosion as undermining other aspects of the ecosystem. Um, so which part of the story of FTX should we see as an anomaly, perhaps idiosyncratic to FTX? And which aspects are exposing perhaps something more about the crypto financial system more broadly, and in particular, the regulatory framework around crypto? There is some debate about to what extent FTX's collapse was the intentional bad actions of bad actors and to what extent it was sort of bank run-ish. But I think you can bracket that and say a lot of the problems at FTX are problems of kind of wildcat banking <laughs> like and are not endemic to crypto in the sense that like they were invented by crypto or you know are are even exacerbated by crypto but are endemic to crypto in the sense that like there's a ton of unregulated shadow banking in crypto crypto shadow banks means preeminently exchanges like derivatives exchanges like FTX or Binance but it also means all these lending platforms and i think particularly in a world where bitcoin is not doubling every 3 months and in a world where my high yield savings account pays like 3% or whatever, people want a more bank-like product from crypto. They want interest on their crypto. And there are not really real banks that will hold your crypto for you for the most part. Like that's not a thing that the Federal Reserve encourages. And so what there are, are these crypto shadow banks. And there are no limits on their leverage imposed by regulation or by anything else. And this is a huge problem at FTX, but it's not, I don't think, exclusive to FTX. We're like... I mean, it's also a big, played a big role in the Celsius bankruptcy, which is another one of these shadow banks, where like an exchange or a lender or entity has its own token. And then like that token trades mostly by like that exchange making markets in it. And then like the token goes up and it's like, oh, we have like $40 billion of this token. So, you know, and we have $10 billion of liability. So we're like not levered that much at all. And then like the token goes to zero and then they're infinitely levered. And that like happened at FTX. And like, did that happen at FTX because they were doing bad stuff? Like, yeah, I think so. But like the other problem that I think is sort of universal and we're finding it out now, there are tons of these bankruptcies, right? There's FTX and Voyager and Celsius. In all of them, there's this weird dynamic of the customers, many of whom were getting 18% interest at some of these places. The customers were like, we're not unsecured creditors. You know, you promised to give us our Bitcoin back, so you should give us our Bitcoin back. And there are these fights in bankruptcy and early rulings are the sensible ruling, which is like, no, of course you're an unsecured creditor. You're getting 18% interest. I think people think 
that their stuff is much more protected at a crypto shadow bank than it is. You know, there are all these these various crypto shadow banks that use the term FDIC, right? I don't think anyone running a crypto shadow bank was like, if you give us Bitcoin, it'll be guaranteed by the FDIC. But they used words that sort of sounded like that if you weren't paying attention. Like the word FDIC got thrown around a lot by, by crypto shadow banks. I don't know if anyone was deceived by that, but like, I don't know, people seem to have been deceived by something. Is there a part of this that is a little bit like, you know, that scene from Casablanca where Ricks gets overrun by the police and uh, Captain Renault is amongst them and then declares he's shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on in this establishment and then is handed his winnings from the previous evening. There's got to be at least a little bit of that going on. The, the crypto depositors now expressing their shock that uh, this was a speculative uh, market in ways that they weren't aware of. When the Madoff Ponzi scheme collapsed, you could find interviews with people who were like, that was my life savings. I thought the 4% was really safe. It didn't see, you know, he was this respected figure on the New York Stock Exchange. You find fewer of those with crypto collapses because like, everyone's like, well, I bought crypto, which was a gamble. And then I thought I'd get 18% interest on my crypto. And yeah, I kind of knew what was going on. So you find a lot of interviews like that where people are like, yeah, my gambling money is gone. There are countries abroad where people were more seduced by crypto shadow banks as like sort of savings institutions rather than gambling institutions. We've talked a lot about this idea of a, tr a trustless system, but it does seem that perhaps some of the engagement um, turns on, on the credibility of the individuals uh, involved. And, and you've interviewed Sam Bankman fried several times. So what do you think uh, was motivating him? Did he come across as kind of a dodgy schemer, a true but perhaps unlucky believer, a true but naive believer? No, he came across as like a finance guy because he wears shorts and he has big hair and, and he's sort of, he's very, you know, he plays video games while he's doing interviews. And so he has this very casual presentation. But I think that if you come from the traditional finance world, that presents as like he's a Jane Street programmer, right? Like he's a, a nerd who is interested in like building financial structures. To me, like that's the person you want running your crypto exchange. You want someone who is not a true believer in like, oh, these magic beans can only go up, but someone who is uh guy who comes from a culture of risk management and who is interested in making high risk adjusted returns by being a middleman and hedging at market risk. And that's what it looked like he was doing. There was a lot of like him talking about their risk management systems and everyone being like, ah, yes, this guy understands risk management systems. And I think it turned out that he understood how to talk about risk management systems and like what they built lagged behind what they were talking about. He said the things that sounded like he was a sort of like hard-nosed, smart person who was interested in building a big financial institution rather than someone who was like a crypto true believer. And uh, I think that some of that turned out not to be quite right. I should note for the record that uh, I know the family pretty well. I've known them for over 30 years and I even knew Sam when he was a little kid, but I haven't seen him since he was two or three years old. Um, I, I want to switch to a slightly different question, uh, Matt, and and it actually has to do with what is kind of like a meta irony, I guess, that while DeFi and crypto and blockchain, you know, one of their great sort of potential promises, I guess, is that they would act as an alternative to agencies, clerks, judges, and so forth for the, for the task of just organizing, verifying things and, and adding to credibility and legitimacy in the economy. But when DeFi and crypto started breaking down in the fall and winter, 
pretty much all of these problems landed right back in the laps of those civil servants that uh, presumably, you know, were the kind of, uh, you don't get it, you're just this kind of get off my lawn type of oldster who's not really uh, up on what crypto and DeFi is all about. Was that happening with regulators as well, where regulators kind of thinking, look, we can step in and start regulating crypto, call it a security, start stepping in and regulating digital autonomous you know, organizations, calling them, I don't know, common law partnerships or something like that. But there's also a sense in which, you know, we would be using a regulatory model kind of from the from the old world, from the old school ways. Uh, did they act too late or was that sort of hesitancy, the same type of hesitancy that at least I had when I was thinking about whether and when I would want to be more involved in the crypto community? In terms of like were regulars on it too late, I don't know. I mean, like there clearly was and would have been political pushback to someone like the SEC saying all tokens are illegal, right? I think there was a lot of like political interest in creating some sort of a sandbox for building some sort of new thing where everyone's like, yeah, we don't know this thing is, but like, if you just shut it down immediately, like we'll never find out if it was good. The US SEC in particular, under both Jay Clayton and, and now under Gary Gensler, were quite temperamentally skeptical of crypto in a way that makes them look pretty good now, you know, um, in some ways, like in other ways, like they should have shut down the things that actually took billions of dollars of people's money instead of like shutting down the things that didn't take billions of dollars of people's money. But like, you don't know if they hadn't shut down those things, would they have taken billions of dollars of people's money? The sort of general, like broad skepticism to crypto probably limited the damage in the US. And certainly the skepticism of banking regulators limited the ability of like a really broad, like collapse of the crypto economy last year to do any damage at all to the banking system or the real economy, right? Like if there were like big banks that had 20% of their assets in crypto loans, then there would be huge problems. And in fact, there weren't because every bank regulator was like, we're going to give you a 1200% risk weight for, for, you know, Bitcoin. And so the contagion from the enormous crypto collapse to the real economy or to the financial system is like, is, is very small. I think that it was hard for regulators to move quickly with like comprehensive regulation because how clearly are all these tokens securities? Like the SEC thinks they're all securities. I think they're right, but it's like not set in stone. And so like they are litigating it, right? And then the other reason is just like, it was fast moving and decentralized in the limited sense that like, it wasn't necessarily easy to know who was running a project and they might've been abroad. And like, there were no real barriers to a foreign crypto entity raising money from the US, right? I mean, they were like legal barriers, but like eh, people kind of ignored them. Um, and so it was truly hard for a you know, national regulator to really comprehensively regulate crypto because it is sort of borderless and there is like at least an excuse and sometimes a reality of decentralization where it's just hard to, hard to say, okay, here are the rules and everyone's gonna follow them because if they don't, like what do you do? So given kind of the, the current regulatory uncertainty and the fact that, you know, we've got these debates around whether we should see crypto and what elements of crypto securities, if you'd have to predict kind of how you think this will play out, what eventually do you think will be kind of the regulatory framework that will be adopted? You know, six months ago, you would, there was political will for some sort of regulatory framework where it was like crypto focused, where like people think from first principles about what regulation crypto needs, right? Because the alternative is in the US is a, is a sort of like SEC driven regulation where it's securities focused, where everything is like, you know, you file a registration statement and it's like a company. And I think that that is bad for 
a lot of notions of decentralized finance and a lot of notions of like what you can use crypto tokens for that aren't just equity ownership. And so I think that there was a lot of interest that starts from crypto principles rather than starting from securities law principles. But that will has like kind of evaporated because if you were like a politician taking money from Sam Bankman Fried, like you're not really going to be like, we need more, you know, crypto freedom these days, right? Because it's just like a bad look. But then also because like, I think that the recent months have, have kind of undermined the case for like, there is a crypto thing that is value creating that is different from being a security. And so it's harder to be like, we need to treat these things not as investment securities, but as some other category of thing because they're a huge technical innovation, right? Like they seem to be investment securities that like went down a lot. People got fleeced. And so it's like, yeah, we should regulate them like investment securities. And like, if that makes it hard to sell them to retail investors, good. In the US, in the near future, it is hard for me to see any crypto rules being written at all. Other than like, I don't know exactly the state of banking regulation, but if a banking regulator were to put out a rule tomorrow saying don't own Bitcoin, I'd be like, yeah, that's like the status quo. Um, but so what that means is that rules, the rules are sort of like set by SEC enforcement litigation where they think that everything is a security and selling it in an unregistered offering is illegal. And they'll bring more of those cases. You know, the SEC has this target rich environment where they're going to go after issuers that not only issued things that were arguably securities, but that also lost all of their investors' money. The regulatory environment is going to be set by enforcement litigation in a very unfavorable scenario for crypto. That's going to lead to sort of tighter legal restrictions on crypto in the U.S. I know less about what's going to happen abroad. I think like, you know, the experience of the Bahamas is going to make other countries not that excited about becoming crypto sandboxes, right? And saying, we're going to free crypto. To, but I think there's still some of that, right? I think there's still companies, countries who are like, we're going we're to get a, an advantage by being more welcoming to crypto. I mean, that's still, you know, El Salvador is still on that, on that path. The other thing that's going to happen in the, in the US is like, again, regulation is going to be set by not affirmative rulemaking, but by like litigation that has to happen. The other litigation that has to happen is, is bankruptcy, right? And like, I don't know how much that's going to but like, you know, there are a lot of fights now over like what sorts of claims crypto creditors have and like what sorts of things crypto is in, in terms of like what kind of recovery you get in bankruptcy. And so some amount of like the legal status of crypto will be set by bankruptcy courts who have no choice but to decide it because these crypto firms are all in bankruptcy. Matt, I'm wondering if I can invite you to take kind of the long view on this. When I think back sort of in my lifetime alone, this strikes me as maybe the fifth major bubble that has burst that has been heavily newsworthy and has has been covered. Uh, this also includes the 2008 financial crisis that was at least nominally triggered by mortgage derivatives and credit derivatives and the 2001.com bubble that was sort of fueled by flashy but uh, but otherwise quite empty internet advertising and the crash of 1987 which was set off by trading algorithms and the SNL crisis which was purportedly fueled by junk bonds and in every one of these situations it seems to me there was like this new new thing that the oldsters didn't get they were skeptical of but the advocates got really excited and maybe excessively exuberant about and then you know, everything blew up and it gave rise to all kinds of new rules, new regulation. There was litigation. Some people went to prison. At At the end of the process, when things sort of settled down, I kind of I kind of look out at our system right now and and I see, you know, Internet advertising. I see I see a lot of it. And 
Credit derivatives are still playing a pretty big role in what we do, and high-yield bonds are playing a really big role, and algorithmic trading is what everyone does on, on some level now. And, and they all sort of have found an equilibrium contribution. Is that the fate that you think eventually is going to be either crypto's fate or at least blockchain's fate in our larger financial system? Like, I don't think in 2008 anyone was like, this proves that we don't need mortgages. Um, maybe some people were, but like, no, not really. I have a harder time thinking back to 2001. And I think people were very skeptical about the whole internet enabled business model that is now, you know, every business, but I don't know that they were that skeptical. I think throughout the rise of crypto, a lot of smart, respectable people have said there's nothing here like, at all. And so... Like those people like scored a point. There are clearly still people building in crypto, but like you can't just assume that like because after 2001, like Amazon became a big company that like that is the inevitable fate of every, you know, crash of every pop bubble. Like Beanie Babies never really came back. My view on crypto is like, you know, there are a lot of like smart people like building interesting stuff and like you rub those sticks together long enough, like eventually something's going to happen. But like not that much has happened yet <laughs> compared to like, you know, mortgages or or like internet advertising the odds are that like someone will find some way to make it useful. And I don't think that there's a 0% chance of it being like completely transformative. I think it's like, you know, 0.01. But I don't think there's a 0% chance of, of everyone just being embarrassed by it in five years. You know? <laughs> like, I don't think the odds of that are super high, but I don't think there's zero. One thing I'll say is like the price of Bitcoin has held up quite well, given <laughs> all the catastrophes. And the you know, price of Ether has held up quite well. And so I think that like, the kind of core use cases of crypto, which are like sending a money-like thing in, in, in a relatively uncensorable way and speculating, those core use cases like seem to be sticking around. Oh, I do have one other last question, which is how is your crypto portfolio doing? I believe I invested $120 into crypto. I believe I put $100 into Coinbase to buy some crypto. And I Venmoed a friend $20 to buy like some ether from him because I wanted to do an over the counter transaction. And then it like immediately went up to like, I don't know, $150 or something, $140. I was like, I'm the greatest trader in the world. I'm quitting my job to trade crypto. And then it went down again, but I, I don't, I couldn't tell you to within 50% where my portfolio is today. Obviously your portfolio is too rich for either of our bloods, uh, but, uh, but it remains to be seen. Maybe at some point everything's going to turn around. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it. And I could go on all day, as could Talia, but I'm going to guess you can't. Got to do the newsletter. <laughs> Our guest today was Matt Levine. Join us this season on Beyond Unprecedented and make sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Beyond Unprecedented is brought to you by Columbia Law School and the Ira M. Milstein Center for Global Markets and Corporate Ownership. This podcast is produced by the Office of Communications, Marketing, and Public Affairs at Columbia Law School. Our executive producer is Michael Petulo. Julie Godso, Carrie Midland, and Martha Moore are producers. Editing and engineering by Jake Rosati. Special thanks to Erica Mitnick-Klein and Molly Calkins at the Milstein Center, with research assistance from Alice LeGrand. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about law, the economy, and society, visit us at law.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.